Elisha Perkins was born in Connecticut back in 1741 and trained as a physician before opening his own practice. He happily carried on the family business for years until, in the 1790s, he struck upon a new idea. You see, he had discovered a new tool of medicine, and he was ready to let the world come and benefit from its powers. He called them Perkins tractors, and they were a pair of metal pins, maybe three inches long, that were fat at one end and pointed at the other sort of like two long, elegant nails, and their power was quite extraordinary. All a person had to do was stand over a patient who was battling some painful ailment and use these Perkins tractors to trace the area in question, and like magic, their troubles would go away. In a world of bloodletting and leeches, these tools were different. No skin was broken, and no blood was drawn. The sick person never even felt a twinge of pain, And for the modern equivalent of about $900, anyone could buy a pair from him. Enter John Haygarth, a British physician who was a little bit skeptical about the claims that Perkins was making. So in 1799, he gathered together a bunch of patients and split them into two groups. One received treatment with real metal Perkins tractors, while he used wooden versions on the others. And guess what? The results were the same. They didn't call it this at the time, but Haygarth had become the first person to scientifically demonstrate the placebo effect. He showed just how powerful belief can be, specifically in the medical world, but also everywhere else. Our power of imagination is pretty amazing. We humans have this incredible ability to pour so much belief into an idea or an outcome that sometimes, on rare occasions, it actually comes true. And the same can be said for stories, because sometimes folklore is born in the most mysterious places. I'm Aaron Mankey, and this is Lore. Like a lot of you, I grew up near a river. There are a lot of them out there, and depending on where you live, they're either dried-up remnants of something bigger or a wide expanse of water used by the entire community for fun and recreation, and most are somewhere in between. But in the bottom left corner of Pennsylvania and the top left corner of West Virginia, there's a river that many people think is special. Now, one reason is because it flows from south to north, and it's a common misconception that all rivers must flow south. I know because I grew up alongside a northward-flowing river in Illinois and was taught the exact same thing, but it's just a myth. But the Monongahela River in that little corner of Pennsylvania and West Virginia has other reasons to be considered special. Yes, it has a big community life with miles of trails for bikers and hikers on land, plus anyone with a boat and a fishing pole, but that's not why locals think it's special. Some say it's because of how deep the river is, 20 feet or more in some places. Others say it's past tragedies that took place there, like the Battle of Monongahela, which saw nearly a thousand British soldiers ambushed and killed by the French and their Native American allies on July 9th of 1755. An awful lot of blood was spilled into the river that day, and some folks might say that that has power to do things. Oh, and as a side note, 
The only reason the remaining 500 British soldiers didn't die that day was because one lowly 23-year-old aide-de-camp took charge and pulled off a miraculous retreat, saving their lives. His name? George Washington. But back to the river. You see, over the years, stories have cropped up about mysterious creatures in the region, and I think it would be worth exploring a few right now. But buckle up, because to tour that folklore is to experience the bizarre and the weird. Since the early 1970s, folks in Granttown, West Virginia have whispered about a Bigfoot-type creature that's rumored to haunt the woods there, about five miles from the river. They say it's frequently seen near the old coal mining areas, and sometimes refer to it as the Granttown Goon. A similar sort of creature is said to live farther inland, near the town of Grafton. Like the goon, the beast of Grafton is often described as a sort of Bigfoot creature, standing nearly 10 feet tall with wide, athletic shoulders. But rather than being covered in red or brown hair, the beast is said to have pale, slippery skin, like a seal. Back in June of 1964, a reporter for the Grafton Sentinel was driving home from work close to midnight when he spotted the creature. In the weeks that followed, more than 20 other sightings were reported, putting the community in a sort of panic. Folks organized hunts, and much of the wooded areas around town were explored, but to no avail. But the creature most people talk about also has a name that might get as many laughs. They call it the Sheep Squatch. And yes, you can probably get a sense for its common descriptions just by its name. They say it's a dog-shaped beast the size of a bear, but covered in white fur, reminiscent of a sheep. Back in the mid-1990s, a number of sightings were reported. One man, a former Navy SEAL, claims that he watched the creature walk out of the woods and drink from a stream. That same year, two children told their parents they saw it standing on its hind legs at the edge of their yard. But the most terrifying encounter with the Sheep Squatch took place back in 1929. Frank Kozel was a local miner, a mine employee, not a child, mind you, and had just left work after nearly 12 hours in the earth. He was tired and dirty and really just wanted to get home and clean up and have something to eat. Exhausted at the mere thought of the six-mile walk he had in front of him through the brutal July heat, Frank decided to leave the road and take a shortcut through the woods. It was cooler in there, and the shade was a welcome treat. But halfway through, he spotted something through the foliage that caused him to catch his breath. It was a pale white beast, roughly shaped like a dog, but with horns and long fangs. And it was looking at him. Frank took off running, as any of us would have done in a similar situation, but the creature was faster. In seconds, it was upon him, slashing out with its claws and snapping its vicious mouth at him. Frank used his empty metal lunchbox as a club, batting the monster away, but nothing worked. Breaking away, Frank ran faster, this time leaving the forest, but the creature followed. And then, by pure chance, he came upon an old cemetery and hopped the low wall to get inside. And the moment he did, the beast stopped and disappeared, as if it had never been there at all. And that's when he noticed the most unusual part of his encounter— Looking down at his arms and legs, he inspected himself to see how bad his injuries were, only to discover something that didn't make sense. He had escaped the monster without a scratch. As you can imagine, rumors have a way of becoming something more. One story here or there, 
A careless whisper or a frightful report is all it might take to put an entire community on edge. And that's exactly what they say has happened over the years along the Monongahela River. Folks who talk about Monongi always describe him the same simple way. Monongi is a half-man, half-fish creature that has lived for centuries in the waters of the river from which he gets his name. It has a sort of Fiji mermaid feel to it, or maybe something out of The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. Now, some people think that the Battle of Monongahela back in 1755 was the moment it was born, that the blood from that encounter helped transform something natural into something darker. If you believe the stories, it was around that time that the local Native American community started to talk about the creature. Everything has a birth story, I suppose, so maybe they're right. In the 1930s, though, locals started to report seeing things in the river. Some even blame Menangi on the disappearance of a World War II bomber in 1956, which crashed into the river there. Two of the crewmen never made it out of the river alive, and the plane was never recovered. Both the work of Menangi, they say. Reports became so frequent in the middle of the 20th century that the police were said to have formed a task force specifically designed to document and investigate the stories. On a weekly basis, sightings were said to have taken place, hinting that Menangi had become incredibly active. But it wasn't until 2003 that anyone was able to track down proof. That's the year that a local fisherman posted a series of photos online of the creature. But when those photos mysteriously disappeared, folks started to suspect a cover-up. Clearly, it was in the government's best interest to avoid a community-wide panic. And Menangi hasn't gone away. Back in 2010, swimmers gathered for a race in the river just south of Pittsburgh. They simply called it the Search for Menangi, and 52 swimmers showed up to complete the 1.2-mile loop, hoping that their activity in the water might tempt the river monster out of hiding. He never appeared, though, much to the disappointment of the people who gathered to see him. But here's the thing. All of these stories— from the modern fishing boat photos to that 2010 swimming race, only appear on the historical record after 2010. Yes, the race was built around the theme of a local legend, but those 1930s police task force stories, the descriptions from sightings, all of it first appear in print in an article from 2015. And true to the dependable qualities of the internet, every other article out there about Menangi simply repeats the same details from that 2015 piece. I'm not saying that locals might not have whispered stories about something in the river in that area, but it's also pretty clear that it exists at all in some form or another, simply because people believe it does. Call it the placebo effect. Call it the power of our imagination. Call it whatever you want. But it's clearly a moment in time that shows us just how easy it is for a rumor to be accepted as fact, and then spread around our global community on the wind of excitement and fear. Which, in the end, is the true core of folklore, isn't it? Because whether a story is real or not, that doesn't change how powerful it can be. Folklore can be frightening enough when it's complete fiction, but when there are historical records to back it up, that's when things become truly terrifying. Which is what makes one last creature so alluring to the people in the area around the confluence of the Ohio, Allegheny, and Monongahela rivers. 
The first story we have on record comes to us from 1746. In October of that year, the Nichols family reported that their 12-year-old son was fishing along the river in full view of everyone else there. And without warning, an enormous creature lunged out of the water, took hold of the boy with its long tail, and then dragged him under, never to be seen again. Those who saw it described the creature as a massive turtle the size of a bear, which sounds frightening enough. But when one of the other Nichols' children woke in the middle of the night to the sound of something massive rubbing against the side of their house, the family decided enough was enough. They, along with their closest neighbors, all packed up and left, rather than risk another encounter with the beast. A couple of decades later, a young man at Fort Harmer near Marietta, Ohio, witnessed something so traumatic that he had to write to his parents about it. He started his letter off by explaining what the rumors had been, that there was some monstrous amphibious creature that mostly came out at night to hunt on the riverbank. They lie in the deer paths, he wrote, undiscovered behind an old stump until the deer, unaware of its enemy, passes over it. This creature immediately seizes him and, entangling him in its tail, draws him to the water where he drowns and then devours him. It was troubling enough to hear the stories, but this young man apparently had his own brush with the creature, too. He claimed that he and a group of his friends had been out along the river early one morning when they spotted one of these creatures still wrestling with a deer it had captured. They tried to save the deer by beating on the monster with their clubs, and while they managed to kill it, the poor deer did not survive. He claims that the men weighed the creature, and it was over 440 pounds, which is just massive. It had a shell just like any turtle you might see today, only as big around as a grown man. And apparently, this creature was already commonly known to the Native Americans of the area before white settlers even arrived. And they had a name for it, too. The Ogwa. But one or two encounters doesn't make a pattern. Which is why a story from May of 1983 is so important, because it shows that the monster and the folklore surrounding it has managed to hold on all these centuries later. According to the story, a local man named John White was fishing near the town of Rivesville, where the Monongahela River joins up with Pawpaw Creek. And when you fish, you keep your eye on the water, which is how he spotted it. At first, it just looked like some small waves, almost like the ripples that form around a boulder when the current is fast. But as John watched it, he noticed that the shape the waves were passing around was actually moving toward the shore, and more specifically, toward him. Now, John claimed that he saw a long fin rise up from the water, but I can't help but wonder if it really wasn't the creature's tail. There's no fin on the monster in the earlier descriptions, but they do all mention a really long, almost serpent-like tail. Regardless, the sight of it caused John to panic, and he stepped a good way back from the water's edge. And just in time, too, because as he did, the large, boulder-like shape reached the bank, and then turned quickly around, swinging its tail at the spot where John had been standing. A moment later, it disappeared. Needless to say, John White never fished in that spot, ever again. It's hard to deny the power of belief. For thousands of years, we humans have been filling in the blanks of our understanding of the world with story 
And for many of us, those stories have become incredibly real. One thing to help process the power of folklore is to think of it like a recipe for a good meal. At the core level, there are ingredients and conditions you need to make it all come together, like raw dough and pizza toppings combined with brief but intense heat. Putting them together, you get something delicious that didn't exist before. And what's important to understand about the stories of monstrous creatures in or near the Monongahela River is that they didn't form in a vacuum. It's harsh territory and always has been. And when things are dangerous, it's easy to imagine other, more terrifying reasons why. Add in the economic troubles of the last few decades, as the coal industry has faded from prominence, and you have a recipe for story. As more and more of the mines in the area closed up, those cryptid sightings exploded. Life became unpredictable and full of unknowns. And those are the sort of gaps that folklore tends to flood into and fill up. But let me throw a wrench into the works for a moment, because sometimes nature does offer an explanation, and there are some who think the answer to the Monongahela River's many mysteries can be found right there in the zoological data. It's called the Hellbender Salamander, although many people simply call it the Devil Dog, and it's the largest aquatic salamander in the United States. It's known to grow as long as two and a half feet, and while harmless to humans, it does sometimes hunt for meat. I'm not sure I can declare with confidence that the Nichols boy was dragged into the water by an actual undocumented monster, or whether the young man who wrote that letter a few years later was documenting something still unknown to science. None of us were there, so it's impossible to say. But they certainly encountered something, and the fear and whispers from those moments has left a very real, very powerful mark on the community. That, at least, is difficult to deny. And while it can often feel a bit like a shell game, believing the story is about one thing when it's really about another, what's important is the belief itself. Because in the end, whether we're talking about communal fiction or documented fact, all of us have something to be afraid of. I hope today's journey down the Monongahela River made it clear just how packed with stories the waterways around us truly are. From Bigfoot-like creatures to things just beneath the surface, it seems there's a lot to be afraid of, if you know where to look. But there are other troubled waters around the globe, and in one place in particular, the historical record maintains a careful balance with horrifying story. And if you stick around through this brief sponsor break, I'll tell you all about it. This episode of Lore was made possible by DoorDash. We live in a pretty amazing world, don't we? You can get anything you need when you need it delivered right to your door. With DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. For my family, this became a powerful tool when my kids started back up with after-school sports. All of a sudden, there were days when being able to order a meal became a lifesaver. If it wasn't for DoorDash, we'd have been eating dinner way too late. And maybe you've been there, or in a different situation with a similar solution. Sick on the couch, trapped between never-ending meetings, or even at a party and suddenly out of ice or alcohol. In moments like that, DoorDash can provide a clutch assist. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now and get almost anything delivered. Must be 21 or older to order alcohol. Drink responsibly. Alcohol available only in select markets. 
This episode of Lore is made possible by June's Journey. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance as you immerse yourself in the world of June's Journey, a hidden object mystery mobile game that puts your detective skills to the test. Play as June Parker and investigate beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s whilst uncovering the mystery of her sister's murder. With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Plus, you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. I'm willing to bet that, like me, you work crazy hours and are desperately in need of easy ways to relax. I love that I can open up June's journey and dig in for a little while. Searching for hidden objects, fine-tuning my sense of observation, and enjoying the gorgeous artwork are all so, so helpful in letting me unwind. Mystery, danger, and romance. Where will each new chapter take you? Relax and lose yourself in this captivating quest of mystery, murder, and romance. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode was made possible by Audible. Audible is the home of storytelling and your premium destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Choose from thousands of titles you can't hear anywhere else and embrace the sinister, breathtaking, and shocking tales that will have you on the edge of your seat, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. Audible's extensive library of audiobooks brings thrillers to life using captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. If you love a good folklore-driven supernatural thriller, I cannot say enough good things about Black River Orchard by Chuck Wendig. The audiobook narration is so dang good, and the story is like an evil hybrid of Johnny Appleseed and The Shining, which is probably why it's been nominated for a Stoker Award this year. Really, you have got to check it out. Audible members can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, plus the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, and as an Audible member, you get full access to a growing selection of included audiobooks, Audible originals, and podcasts. Right now, new members can try Audible for free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash lore or text lore to 500-500. That's audible.com slash lore. This episode of Lore was made possible by Simply Safe. Did you know that property crimes like burglaries and package thefts spike over the winter? That's why now is the best time to secure your home with award-winning home security. Simply Safe is the home security system that I recommend to everybody. Make it your resolution to start the new year with greater peace of mind and safety for you and your family. My Simply Safe system was so easy to install and set up. I had the entire grim and mild office space ready in about 30 minutes and I am very much not a tech-savvy guy. Just one of the many reasons that Simply Safe was named the best home security system of 2022 by US News and World Report, a third year in a row. Simply Safe is whole home security with advanced sensors for every room, window, and door, and smarter ways to detect motion that alert you only when the threat is real, even hazard sensors that detect fires, floods, and other threats to your home. Customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com/lore. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off your order with interactive monitoring. That's simplysafe.com/lore. There's no safe like Simply Safe. This episode is also sponsored by BetterHelp. I recently purchased a new camera for making YouTube content for Lore, but I was overwhelmed by the complexity of the thing. Thankfully, it came with an owner's manual and I was able to figure out what I needed to learn. Unfortunately, life doesn't come with a user manual, so when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's a career change, a new relationship, or even becoming a parent. 
Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills, which makes therapy the closest thing to a guided tour of the complex engine called you. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com lore. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lore. And finally, this episode was made possible by Wondrium. I love those aha moments that come with learning, when a topic finally makes sense or I learn something cool. Like what I just learned from watching the new program, Secrets of the Occult, on Wondrium. For example, did you know that back in 1946, a follower of Aleister Crowley tried to conjure the goddess Babylon? And in the process, some believe he may have actually opened a portal for UFOs or the demon entities that control them before dying in a mysterious explosion. I know, crazy stuff, right? With Wondrium, we get to learn all about whatever we want, whenever we want, with unlimited access to thousands of hours of audio and video courses, plus documentaries, tutorials, and more. Watch or listen completely ad-free and on any device, and every Wondrium topic is presented by amazing teachers who are actual experts in their fields. I know you'll love Wondrium as much as I do, and right now my listeners can get this limited-time offer. Get two years of Wondrium for the price of one. It's a fantastic deal. Sign up today through my special URL to get this offer. Go to wondrium.com slash lore. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash lore. Wondrium.com slash lore. I mentioned the Fiji mermaid a few moments ago, something I assume most people have heard about before. The one that really became famous was displayed in 1842 by P.T. Barnum as part of his American Museum in New York City. But most folks forget that it was actually discovered by someone else. Samuel Barrett Eads was a captain of a merchant vessel in the early 1800s, and during an 1822 voyage east across the Pacific, he met some Japanese sailors who sold him the mermaid for a hefty price. Money, by the way, that Samuel borrowed from the ship's own expense funds. And the key connection here would be the Japanese sailors. Because while the mummified corpse of what appeared to be the top half of a monkey and the back end of a fish might have seemed like a new thing to the American captain. It was old hat back in Japan. But a good amount of that unusual taxidermy was actually aimed at a different creature than a mermaid. And rather than being ocean-bound, this one preferred to live in rivers. They call them kappa, and they are described as reptilian-like creatures, roughly in the form of a human child, but with scales, webbed hands, and a turtle-like shell. They're also reported to emit a horrible stench, and they supposedly have an indentation on the top of their heads that holds water. If that water gets spilled, a creature will die. Now, the kappa are a rather interesting corner of folklore. They're mostly viewed as predators, capable of superhuman strength, and responsible for kidnapping, assaulting, and murdering anyone they come across. One thing that popped up in our research over and over again was just how obsessed the kappa were with the human anus. And while there's a lot more I could say about that, I'm just going to leave that one alone. The kappa were also said to be highly intelligent, capable of learning languages, and also proud and honorable. 
In fact, one rumored method for killing them if you met one on land was to bow, because the kappa would be compelled to bow in return, which would spill the water in their head, killing them. And apart from murder and assault, there was one thing the kappa loved more than most. Cucumbers. Which, no, I really don't understand, but let's just file that little detail away in case it becomes important later. Now, looking through Japanese history, one thing that really jumps out is how the kappa have always been treated as real creatures in need of study and documentation. As far back as the Edo period, which began around 1603, there were scientific studies being published about them, complete with anatomical drawings as if the authors of the reports had actually examined them as they wrote. In the mid-1700s, someone brought a mysterious creature to an herbalist named Ito Chobe and asked him to identify it. When he consulted an older report and sketch of the kappa, he discovered it was a match. They were even known to swim in the moat around Edo Castle well into the late 18th century. Back to that unusual taxidermy, though. In the spring of 2014, a mummified kappa arm went on display in a museum in Miyazaka. It was one of a whole number of mummified kappa that had appeared throughout history, all in various states of decay and completeness. But honestly, what most people want is a chance to see a live one. And if you happen to be visiting Japan, you might just be in luck. There seems to be a spot behind the temple in Tano City, known as Kapabuchi, where the river is clear and deep and legend says it's home to a whole population of the mysterious creatures. Today, tourists flock there for a chance to witness one firsthand, although judging by the legends, I doubt that would end well for the humans. But there's also a fisherman on duty there who uses his own handmade fishing pole. And the bait of choice? Cucumber, of course. Unsurprisingly, the current fisherman has never seen a kappa in the flesh, but he claims his predecessor did. Three times, in fact, complete with its red skin and dish-like indentation on the head. Today, it's believed that the kappa is a tool of folklore designed by farmers long ago to keep their children safe near dangerous rivers. And that would make a lot of sense. Lots of folklore is educational and protective in nature. But there are others who disagree. They believe people have been seeing a real living creature over the centuries. It's just not a mythical beast. No, they think everyone has been misidentifying the Japanese giant salamander. And once you hear about it, you might see why. Also known as the Hanzaki, these salamanders can grow up to 5 feet long and weigh in at over 50 pounds. They're carnivorous, with sharp teeth and dark skin, and even emit a strong, foul odor. Just like the Kappa of legend. Fact or fiction? I'll let you decide. But if you find yourself strolling a riverbank in Japan anytime soon, you might be wise to keep one eye on the water and your nose to the wind. This episode of Lore was written and produced by me, Aaron Mankey, with research by Jenna Rose Nethercott and music by Chad Lawson. Lore is much more than just a podcast. There's a book series available in bookstores and online, and two seasons of the television show on Amazon Prime Video. Check them both out if you want more lore in your life. I also make and executive produce a whole bunch of other podcasts, all of which I think you'd enjoy. My production company, Grim and Mild, specializes in shows that sit at the intersection of the dark and the historical. You can learn more about all of those shows and everything else going on over in one central place. Grim and Mild. 
And you can also follow this show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Lore Podcast, all one word, and then click that follow button. And when you do, say hi. I like it when people say hi. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>